Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It is hard to believe that we have been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. So many great movies, so many great conversations. But it's a lot of work. Producing this show week after week does require a lot behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions. We had some great films in Season 8 that started their lives as books or plays, and you can find all of them on our Originals page at thenextreel.com slash originals. That's the site where listeners can find links to purchase all the source material behind the adapted films we covered from season one up through our current season. For part of season eight, we had a series celebrating the 50th anniversary of films from 1968. We talked about 2001 and 2010 for our Odyssey series, both adapted from Arthur C. Clarke's novels. Man, the second one was so much better than the first, right? Don't you even get me started. <sighs> Need I bring up Under the Cherry Moon again? Yes, also so much better. <laughs> wait, wait, no, that's not what I... <sighs> Planet of the Apes kicked off its series based on the novel by Pierre Boulet. We covered Danger Diabolic and The Detective, adapted from novels for our 1968 crime films. Wait, wasn't that The Detective the prequel to Die Hard? They were both written by Roderick Thorpe, and yes, it's the same character in the books. I can't believe they even asked Sinatra if he'd be in Die Hard. That would have been yeah. weird. <laughs> Uh, Once Upon a Time in America was part of our Leone Once Upon a Time trilogy, adapted from Harry Gray's novel. And we looked at 1968 Best Picture nominees The Lion in Winter, Rachel Rachel, Romeo and Juliet, and Oliver! We also had an Ingrid Bergman series with adaptations like Spellbound, For Whom the Bell Tolls, Murder on the Orient Express, and Gaslight. We haven't talked about Gaslight. Stop gaslighting me! <laughs> Dive deeper into these books and more adapted films at thenextreel.com slash originals. Every purchase supports the podcast. Get the full list of adaptations that we've covered on all the Next Real family of podcasts and start your next read today at thenextreel.com slash originals.
next reel, everybody. I'm Pete Wright, and that there is Andy Nelson. Hey, hey, hey. And we spoil movies. Tonight on the show, sorry, Norman, it's Vicky's time to shine. Again. As we kick off the second in our series on the films, A Star is Born. Yes, A Star is Born. And in its splendor and deep emotional fire, in its shining beauty and wonderful heart, a new era in motion picture achievement is also born. You'll see it in the richness and magnificence so lavishly poured into every scene. You'll feel it in the countless moments of deep human understanding. You'll hear it in the rousing tempo of its great music. And you'll know it when you experience the joy and jubilation of Judy Garland as the star. And you'll never forget James Mason as Norman Maine, clinging desperately to the only real love he'd ever known. There's Jack Carson, Charles Bickford, all bringing inspired life to a story that only life itself could have inspired. You don't know what it's like to see somebody you love crumble away in front of your eyes bit by bit, day by day. I, I hate myself because I failed to. You got it, just like you dreamed it. Oh, no. I've got more. So much more. It's a new... How I love you, Swanee. How I love you. Andy, I feel like we need to break this episode up with some massive vaudevillian musical numbers. I think that's a way we could really improve the the patter of the show. Don't you think the patter? <laughs> oh, absolutely. <laughs> it needs it. Uh, now, I, I believe if I am correct, uh, you and I both watched the uh, the restored 83 restored version. Correct. Reconstructed yeah. version. Yeah. Reconstructed. Yeah. It was restored as best they could, I guess you could say. They All right. Still... You need to, yeah. Give us a little backstory on what we saw. So we watched uh, when this film premiered. We're talking about the 1954 A Star is Born starring Judy Garland and James Mason and uh, directed by George Cukor. This film premiered at 182 minutes. So three hours and two minutes. Warner Brothers decided, oof. This is long. Let's not have that released. It's too much. And, uh, you know, I, I think what was happening was they, there was this fear of uh, TV kicking in. There were a lot of issues happening in the 50s that people were worried about. And uh, studios, this was kind of a turn in the studio system, and they were worried about a long movie. And they thought this three-hour movie would be a little too much. And so the Warner Brothers executives, even though people seemed to love this movie, um, they they were concerned about not having enough showings uh, in any given day. So they made cuts without George Cukor, who he was off scouting uh, locations for his next film. So they cut about a half hour out of the film. It went from 182 minutes to 154 minutes. And uh, there were two major musical numbers that were chopped out. There were uh, crucial dramatic scenes cut out. George Cukor, when he finally saw it, said it was a very painful experience. And uh, yeah, it was it was the kind of this odd 
thing that they decided to do. But, you know, how studios are sometimes. They go through these panic modes. And they panicked. And uh, so that's that's what happened. And, uh, the you know, the critics seemed to still like it. But it was one of those movies that that people were like, oh, but the better version's out there. The better version is out there. And it wasn't until 1983 when all of these people who it actually started in 1981, a film preservationist, um, he found all of this footage in the Warner's archives. Well, most of the footage, as people who watch this film will find out, there are a good number of scenes that you watch that it's just stills. You're watching still photos of I don't know what they were rehearsals or some some other yeah, footage like just backlot stuff yeah just I don't know. filler filler footage there was one shot where I swear it was probably just a candid shot of Judy Garland laying by the pool right but they decided we'll <laughs> right. just use this because we don't have anything else I felt really bad for them but I mean I appreciated that they went through the lengths and it took so it took a, a couple years to get it all put back together including the two musical numbers here's what I'm here for and lose that long face and all of it uh, came back as a reconstructed version in 1983, and they found most of it. They found 176 minutes. So there are six minutes still, I guess, unaccounted for, not counting the stills that they ended up kind of filling in. But at least they had the dialogue still. They or they had, um, you know, for those minutes that they had to use the uh, the stills for, they they still had the audio tracks. So that was helpful. And so, did you notice there is a there is a sequence too where they actually have sound of the scene and they turn it down and play additional sound over the actual scene? I don't remember that. Huh. Okay. Yeah, it's the actor's lips are not lining up with what they say and you can kind of hear the original scene. Anyhow, we'll we'll might get to that. I'm going to find yeah. it. It's it's disconcerting. Well, people still are hoping that the remaining six minutes will be found and that they, you know, they're hoping for what, you know, people have now dubbed the long lost George Cukor cut, um, you know, if they ever find those final minutes so they can actually kind of cut this thing together the way that it had been originally intended when George Cukor edited it. But as it stands right now, this is what we have. The 176 minute version, which includes some stills putting scenes together. I think the stills are just one component that makes this a, a rough watch. I, I think it's for my to my eye, its grandest sin is it's just length overall. I think the movie is too long. Uh, what we get in exchange for that in, in this case is, uh, I think, a much more balanced character story. We get so much more between, you know, that uh, of the, the story between Vicky and who she is, what she is, and the story of Norman, what he is, separately as characters. It feels like a, a much more balanced um, sort of expose of who they each are kind of before they come together, as they come together. Uh, it, it doesn't feel like one one character is getting more play than than another uh, insofar as the, the narrative part of the film is obviously she gets more play because she is Judy Garland and this is a musical and she sings a lot in this movie. Um, but it, but in terms of the, the overall A Star is Born narrative arc, I think, um, uh, you know, we, we get a lot of character stuff in exchange for that three hour runtime. And I really appreciated that because, yeah, you're right. In the first one, it, it feels very much like Esther's story, right? Yes. Like the way that the 1937 film plays. We start with her back home in the country 
or wherever she's from. And we we kind of see her make that decision uh, with the help of Granny to go off and follow her dreams and go off to Hollywood. And we kind of follow her. And she's very much the protagonist of the film. And, you know, the the wonderful character of Norman Maine is very much kind of the the um, I don't want to call him a supporting character, but he's very much kind of the. Uh, you could almost call him the antagonist in a story like this because he's the one who's <laughs> who you know their two stories come together and because of her success it pushes him into this place that that he ends up kind of leading to his suicide um but it's not really an antagonist it's just it's the wrong word but you know what i mean it's like it's her story yeah. she he's just the one who's um affected by her her rise in this film the the story is more balanced you have I mean, really, it's interesting. This story really starts with Norman Maine as we kind of get this sense of of the people uh, getting ready to do uh, the the night of stars, this big kind of Hollywood fundraiser sort of soiree. And and he shows up and he's drunk and it's just it's the kind of the same setup. But we haven't met her yet. And, and she right. actually comes in as the almost like the secondary character. So it was really interesting to see him become almost like the the initial focus of the film which i really liked and i think that was a good setup for allowing a much more balanced story between norman's story and esther's story as we get to see these two really grow and kind of come together and then uh, really experience the pain as as his life takes that turn into a direction that uh, is still very tragic yeah, it, and it's weirdly efficient for a movie that's as long-winded as this is. Like, it gets us into the narrative and into the whole sort of the intrigue of the ingenue plucked from the chorus mode um, very quickly uh, in this movie. Like, I, I really felt like this, it, it kicked off with some great energy, and I was excited about that opening musical number, and I thought she was great, and I thought he was terrific, and it was clumsy, and and uh, it was sparked by these moments of violence, you know, him breaking the glass, the mirrors, like, uh, just kind of, he felt like such an engaging drunk uh, that I was captivated by this opening sequence. And uh, and I thought it really set us up well. What we what we lose here is her extended family, right? We have none of that backstory uh, of, uh, you know, the the kid with the starry eyes going trying to make her way in Hollywood. Um, here we have a, a young Vicky who is already essentially, a, a you know, a working scale performer. It's it's interesting. I actually I didn't miss the backstory. Um, because I think that by this point, it was probably pretty cliche to kind of have that backstory. I actually really liked this change to her backstory where she was a performer, but she wasn't somebody who was a star yet. She was just this, this person who, who did these gigs and was like a gig performer with this band. And they would go around and do these different things and was not on a path to ever make anything of herself other than just these, these little gigs. And it just, it was this moment. And that's what I really liked about this is this, this, this single moment where, where Norman kind of recognizes, you know, he's kind of fascinated by her when he, when she kind of saves him, in his uh, drunkenness at this uh, night of stars, which I thought was a really great kind of, I guess you could call it the meat cute in this one. Yeah, I really right. kind of, I really liked it a lot. Um, not to mention the brilliant lipstick on the wall, but I'm sure we'll talk about that in a minute. But, but this one allowed for this, um, I don't know, it, it allowed for this sense of 
this this person who was there who was just you know i i liked it better than the waitress thing i guess that's what i'm saying is she was already a performer but just because you're a performer doesn't mean you're going to be famous and right. so i really liked that because it made it into this thing that felt really authentic you know she's she's doing it you know she's actually doing it well in this movie if anything is full of performers who are not going to be famous yeah you know, I mean, it's all it's we've got so much chorus line. We've got so much. I mean, it really is a showcase of of the the an- anonymity of, um, you know, Hollywood and and that it is a unique struggle to to become, you know, famous. Right. And and that's what I think this one really excelled at was was that moment of of him and her and him seeing her perform at that kind of that bluesy club afterward right. where the performers just go and kind of perform. And he's got that great line. He says, a career is a curious thing. Talent isn't always enough. You need a sense of timing, an eye for seeing the turning point of recognizing the big chance when it comes along and grabbing it. A career can rest on a trifle like us sitting here tonight, or it can turn on somebody seeing something in you that nobody else ever saw and saying, you're better than that. You're better than you know. Don't settle for the little dream. Go on to the big one. And I think that yeah. that's, I don't know, it really spoke to me because it was like, how many people have gone out to Hollywood and have found some semblance of that little dream. And they're like, oh, well, I'm here. You know, this is great. I'll I'll settle. To your point, I I think we have that that sequence, um, you know, where she has to make the choice. She has to make the choice to go in for the screen test uh, at the expense of letting down her band and her piano player. And they're about to leave on tour the next morning. And she has to have that conversation with him. I'm leaving. I'm not going with you. And that is a really important sequence in the sort of gestalt of this uh, of this kind of story, uh, which is, you know, the our heroine here has to make uh, a choice for her future and a choice to take the risk. And if we believe her in her ability to uh, or in her willingness to take that risk, then we'll we'll sort of hang with her for the rest of the uh, of the story. And I do believe her in this. thing. I think we needed that scene. And it's a scene that we don't have um, in the uh, in the original 37 film, right? We don't get to see that because she's not already working in the industry. Uh, I, I think having that sequence where she gets to make the choice makes the rest of the the narrative part of this version better. Yeah, definitely. And allow for even that moment when uh, Norman, he without realizing it after kind of promising all this with her and she makes this decision, he's shipped off over to right. uh, location shooting and he's gone for weeks. And she ends up, you know, not able to do this screen test. And she ends up basically a waitress, which is something she said she would never do. I thought that was brilliant. Like she took that chance and failed. And I was like, that was totally (laughs) unexpected. I really loved that. And I mean, it's not like it it lingers on it or anything. And even when Norman shows up, it's not like she's bitter, which I thought was a little funny that she's just like, oh, hey. Some of that, right? Come on. (laughs) I mean, granted, we were looking at it through through photos so it's yeah, right. a little hard to say but still um uh, but i appreciated that and and for me i i thought this had a really strong setup like i loved all of the stuff leading up to this moment yeah and and i think uh, you know now is as good a time of any to bring uh, to bring up the the sort of cultural resonance of that relationship and you know as a, a woman in the 50s who is in so many ways at this point professionally subservient to this guy like she has no control over this, all she can do is remain charming uh, in order to keep him 
interested in her. Right. I mean, that's if she wants to continue to develop professionally at this time, that that feels like an, an authentic way to respond. And so, you know, I, I I find that that choice generally believable to just for, to have her be happy. And we're not going to see a movie made in 1954 that's going to treat that um, maybe with the gravitas that we do with, you know, 2018 eyes. 19. Yeah, God, right, it's right. 2019. Andy. <laughs> right. Well, 2018 uh, eyes, though, if you're looking at the most recent version. So I think that's okay. an acceptable that's way fair. to say it. All right. <laughs> Andy with the save. Okay. Um, so I, I, uh, I, I like it. Can I, I, I want to divert just a little bit here and talk more specifically about Judy Garland. Okay. Um, because we're counting on Judy Garland, the, the uh, actor, to be able to deliver uh, all of these little nuances and do it in a in a way that's in a film that is kind of uh, multiple personality. Uh, and I am not I, I did not find her believable in a consistent manner throughout the course of the film. I, I struggled with her performance more than anything else. Am I alone? Interesting. No, I, I mean, yes, yes. <laughs> Curses. <laughs> I really did. I struggled with her. I found her uh, just uh, in some cases, just straight up not believable. I found her. Um, uh, I, I found the singing. There was just too much singing. <laughs> I, just, I got really tired of her voice. And uh, I, I felt like the musical numbers over and over again, really distracted from the story, especially in the last hour that I wanted just to sit with and i wanted to to let james mason kind of own the end and I, it's such it in those set pieces it can be such a star piece for her that it's really exhausting until we get to kind of the last 45 minutes and our entry into the last 45 minutes is this incredible sequence where she does this this bit about being happy you know bringing the happy to the farm or the neighborhood or whatever and then she goes in and she has this conversation with um with the producer uh and and we watch judy garland really straight up perform and delivers this amazing scene where she talks about how she hates herself and she hates him and she hates their relationship and uh, that that she feels like she's failed him and I am I am back in it uh, for the end of the film and and you know when she has to turn around this this like kukor magic right when she has to finish that scene where she's in tears and come back around and play the freckled uh, optimist as they lean in on the close ups uh of of this particular musical number i thought was was incredible so i i find the film a real roller coaster in whether or not i'm with judy garland when i'm with her i'm really with her and when i'm not i just i'm i want to watch this movie on about double speed with no sound through the middle hour and 20 minutes so okay i've got two points there um i i don't disagree with you at the film's length and the musical numbers because for me uh it it it's too long and that's largely where it bogs down for me is the songs because for me and this is i think my sense of of 
you know, how I enjoy musicals is I enjoy a song that is, it's kind of almost like built in as a part of the story. And as the song goes, it's, it's helping tell the story and move us somewhere. Yeah. It moves the story forward. The songs here are all feel like, uh, and it's weirdly part of the nature of, of the film because she's filming musicals. So sometimes I feel like we're just watching songs that are parts of these various musicals that she's doing and she's performing like you know down in brazil and here's what they do and now we're in africa and there's a tiger in the living room and you know all this all this stuff that she's doing it feels very much like okay we're just watching scenes from musicals now i get it there's a thematic subtext to the song and how it fits into the story but for me it just was still too much like it it really took its time giving us all of that. And I, it, for me, it just, it really slowed it down. So I do agree with you to that point. I think that is very much the case here. Um, but, but as my second point, I have a hard time completely faulting Judy Garland because I think she gives an incredible performance throughout this film. I, I really enjoy her character. I enjoy the way that she builds this relationship with Norman and the way that, uh, that she kind of you know, gets to this place at the end where he's destroyed and she's watching him. And when she sees him and she does her plea in the courtroom and everything, it just, it all worked really well for me. I just liked all of the way that she performed all the way up through to the end. I just feel that struggle for me is because of the songs. Yeah. And I absolutely agree with you. And case in point, the musical montage right in the, in the middle, it's the very last thing before the intermission in this film. It starts at about an hour eight and it lasts an hour 23. And this is where Vicki and Norman are going to see her first big premiere. And this musical montage is them watching the sequence in the movie. Right. And what it's describing is check me when I start lying. It's the character in the movie and her uh, sort of coming of age as a performer. And so we go through her performing history as she's auditioning, as she's trying to get jobs modeling, as she's trying to she's trying to make a name for herself. This sequence, uh, the, the backstory of a character in a film in the film that otherwise if you think too hard about it, you don't really need to care about at all uh, is 15 straight minutes of uh, of playing sort of musical Frogger, right? Every a few bars, it changes songs and changes tones. And uh, I, I find it super frenetic to listen to and concentrate on, especially when you think about like, I don't know how this this is not set up as some sort of a biopic of Vicky. It's she's playing a character in this in this thing. Do they want us reliably to see this as her musical montage, the performer? Uh, or is this just, as you say, another musical moment to give Judy Garland a chance to perform? Well, and that's a I mean, that's a, a, a I mean, it's I can see why you're picking that one, because it's such a long song. But I do think that fits in with musicals from the 50s. They would have these song medleys. Yeah. Like even Singing in the Rain has that uh, Broadway, uh, Broadway melody medley that kicks in toward the end. And those are musical uh, bits in films that I always struggle with. You know, they, they, they go, it's almost like this blend of these songs. And it, it, I don't know. Inevitably, I have a hard time with them. I much prefer other sorts of songs where they're singing part of the story. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, you know, outside of that, it is an odd scene because it, it, it I don't know, <laughs> I found it actually pretty interesting 
personally, um, that they set it up almost like we're watching uh, Esther's backstory, even though it's not Esther's backstory. Or is it like it, it, it yeah. was a weird thing to kind of throw in and allow us to linger on for such a length of time, almost like assuming like, OK, we didn't give you the backstory early, so this is it even though it's now in this fictionalized setting. It was really weird. Yeah. <laughs> you know, right. I, don't know, I don't know why they chose to do it that way. I did kind of like it, but, uh, you know, again, it, it's one of these things that it's like, did we need a 15-minute musical number in the middle of the film? I don't know. What's interesting about that song, just to sidestep the point that we're talking about here, that song was actually uh, at her husband's suggestion, doing this whole medley as this showcase for for Judy. And um, they and and Warner Brothers inserted it, even though George Cukor didn't actually want this. He, this is funny. <laughs> he actually feared adding this would cut would lead to cuts in other areas. <laughs> <laughs> and look at what happened. Oops. <laughs> uh, yeah. So funny. Uh, yeah. You know, what is interesting about it, you know, as we look at parallels between the, all of these Stars Born movies, um, the the thing that this gives Judy Garland, the sort of vaudeville performer, a chance to do is to is to, you know, jump around and change sort of characters and character voices uh, very, very quickly. And she moves from scene to scene, which I, I have to add, like watching this 15 minutes outside of the movie, just like queuing it up at, at an hour eight and watching that sequence without the, the benefit of everything on either side. It's visually really cool, right? The production design is super cool. The way they move through all of these different musical numbers and sets, I think is really interesting. And these beautiful costume changes and, and things, it's actually quite lovely to watch if you don't, you know, if you don't, pay attention to the rest of the of what it's doing to the movie as a whole. Uh, but it also gives Vicky a chance here. Vicky and we're using Vicky and Esther interchangeably. It's the same for those who don't remember its stage name. So yeah. you got it. Um, it, it gives uh, uh, Vicky Esther a chance to to do that thing where she's jumping around from scene to scene and showcasing all of her different her range. Right. It's showcasing her, um, you know, singing in different styles and different tones and, and you know, her ability to move and dance in different ways. And it just reminded me sort of spiritually as the uh, as the kind of meet cute sequence we talked about where she was playing the waitress at the party in 1937, where she's jumping around from group to group and she's kind of playing a different part, which I thought was equally cute. Um, and, uh, you know, also there to demonstrate her range as a performer and hopefully get noticed. And, and you know, in this case, she wanted to get noticed to try to stay a, a budding star, right? This was her big shot. She needed people to fall in love with her and to see her range and want to see her again. And I, I thought that was, I thought that was interesting in service of the story. Well, yeah. And, and I think that is largely going to hold true for me for any of these types of musical numbers in these movies where, it's 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 a musical number, but it doesn't it doesn't fit so perfectly with the story. Like, I think that it's an yeah. interesting story. It's an interesting and beautiful thing to watch in and of itself. Exactly. But yes, when I'm watching a three hour movie, cut that 15 minutes out. Yeah, cut it, cut it, cut it, cut it. And you brought up the other musical number, which was in that last sequence that are in the last part of the film, which was her coming home after a long day to Norman and. She then puts on the practice record and proceeds to dance around the apartment doing all kinds of different, you know, songs and accents and, um, you know, with the the leopard rug 
and dancing around like doing the with the lampshade hey, on her head the lampshade on her head and i know that i'm that, that i've got this sort of gift of of hindsight here but i was i i just didn't like the song i didn't like what they had her doing i was embarrassed for her judy garland in this movie i was so taken out of the movie in that sequence i thought why why did she say yes to this this is ridiculous and to have James Mason in the background with that giant smile clapping for her after that nonsense that she had just done on screen, uh, I, I found myself, I, I was really surprised. I don't think I reacted to it as negatively as you did. I mean, it was fine other than obviously the... Uh, it's still a 50s musical number it, that jumps all over the place. That, right. And it just, it, you know, there's there are elements that you have to take into account that nowadays probably wouldn't play so well. Right. As far as like, uh, you know, racial depictions and things like that. But, but there was something about the, the place of it that I thought was interesting. And to that end, I, I, I kind of enjoyed it because there was this element of the way that, that, um, that Vicky here was trying to, she, she saw that Norman was going through some depression here, right? She saw the golf clubs or the golf balls on the floor and she knew, you know, from a line earlier in the film. He said something about how he uh, would play golf when he was depressed or whatever. Right. And right. so she saw that she, you know, he, he had made the sandwiches and all this sort of stuff. So it's, it's almost like this moment where she's like, let me see if I can, you know, put on the show and, and use it to kind of, you know, get him out of his funk. Mm-hmm. And so to that end, I appreciated it, but, um, but I, 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 so I didn't, I didn't have the issues you did, but I still didn't walk away loving the scene. Yeah, I mean to to that point, I agree with you absolutely. The scene it needed something. It needed her to to put on the clown makeup and make him smile, right? Yeah. Um, I just didn't like what they chose to do with it. Yeah. Uh, no, which right. I think yeah. is is two separate things. Yeah. Um the, what about their relationship in general, right? Of of uh Vicky and and Norman. Did you did you buy it? Uh especially in comparison with Vicky and Norman of the first one. Yeah, and that's something I think that in in these uh these two films they've done a really good job of, of developing these relationships between in both cases between Esther and Norman and allowing us to kind of see this relationship form and seeing this kind of connection between these two people and uh the joy in her and and kind of the the pain in his life as he's kind of crumbling I really liked uh, James Mason in this. I thought, I mean, I've always enjoyed James Mason. I think he's an, a fantastic actor, always exciting to watch. But I think the two of them had a great on-screen chemistry, and that's something you don't always get. But I enjoyed every scene that the two of these people uh, were in together, from the moment when they when they met and she kind of helped him drunkenly on stage to afterward when he sees her and they're talking after kind of uh, singing that song. Uh, to the moment when he proposes, which was just an, kind of this really awkwardly adorable um, proposal that they do in front of everybody. I, I, don't know, I just really I liked their relationship all the way to the painful moments at the end. I mean, it, it worked really well for me. I actually agree with you. And I was set up to not like it when I sat down. I was watching this with my daughter and she is a teenager. And the first thing she said when she saw them on screen together kissing was, oh, God, that's horrible. And I stopped and thought, wait a minute, is it horrible? Am I just totally checked out on this? (laughs) Is this an inappropriate (laughs) thing? 
And I totally get it from her perspective. But for me, I, I actually really bought it from it, it turns out from the beginning uh, I bought it. And I think it's because in this movie, she plays a little bit older uh, than Vicky in the first movie, because we didn't have the the scene where she's leaving home. She presents here. Garland presents a grander experience and uh, that she is uh, she has more agency in that transition from, um, you know, not knowing Norman at all to being his wife also and maybe it's because i mean has your daughter seen judy garland in any films other than uh the wizard of oz <laughs> nope <laughs> because <laughs> that's an, an astute thing to point because, out maybe that's right yeah, she was think, a kid right I, and i think i mean judy garland even at this point in her career amazingly still looks like you know she has that just youthful uh, vibe that comes across really well. And so you see her in this. And even though at this point she was born in what? Uh, uh, 1922. Like so, uh, so this was 54. So they're 52. So she's 32 when she was making this. Yeah. So, I mean, <laughs> I mean, yeah. And, and she's, um, I, I think shortly after finishing this, she has her third child. So she's very right. much, an adult and but it's she looks still very much like a young person and so i can see if a young person has only seen her in the wizard of oz and then sees her that's going to be context this shock whole, <laughs> this old james mason is yeah. like what the heck yeah because yeah, i mean james mason now i'm really curious james mason was born in 1909 so he was 140 so <laughs> when he did this movie uh, i get it now yeah, so he was what forty five. Yeah, right. Uh, forty four, forty five, somewhere in there. And so, yeah, I mean, you when know, you're when you're sixteen, that's gross. <laughs> yeah, just kind of continuing the relationship angle, um, and and specifically like the Judy Garland angle with this film. I do think that it's really interesting, especially the way that they ended up writing this version of the script, where it really did have a much stronger balance between um, the Norman Main character and the Vicky Lester character. This film, and we talked about this a little bit last week, how how uh, it had been kind of uh, lost, and and Warner Brothers ended up acquiring the rights in the in the I think it was around 1952 or so, and uh, how how it kind of came to be. What's what's what I think is interesting about this is that Judy, um, it was I can't remember exactly how it was, but and basically she went through this pretty awful stretch, right? She was a contract player for MGM for a very long time. And, um, but as we talked about, when we talked about a wizard of the wizard of Oz, she really sadly was abused by this studio system and became, uh, an addict and became a real problem person to work with, work with in, in the films. And so even though she was working with MGM, all the way up into the uh through the 40s and i think into um 1950 she um uh they they were having issues with her you know she was uh became very difficult to handle uh weight issues uh you know argumentative uh drug issues all sorts of things she tried to kill herself i mean there're just all sorts of awful things and it was it was just a really rough time for her. So 1950, MGM kind of severed their their contract and they they parted company. And so she went on this this journey to try to 
kind of get herself going again. And so she did a lot of stage performances and, and really kind of cleaned up her act and everything, even though she was still struggling, but she, she cleaned up her act largely. And, and actually her stage shows became really quite uh, popular. And, and that's how she kind of regained this fame again. And um, she had gotten divorced with um, Vincente Minnelli that she had met when she did um, uh, what's the uh, meet me in St. Louis. And uh, she ended up meeting Sidney Luft in 1952. They got married and um, he was uh, became her tour manager and producer. And uh, they had a baby, which was, I think, her second and uh, their first together. And then uh, that's when they decided, you know, well, I mean, he was this tour manager producer guy. He kind of saw her with an opportunity to say, hey, maybe we can turn this into something. And that's when this this property kind of got back into Warner Brothers' hands. Um, Judy with her husband and um, uh, I think there was one other person, but they formed this production company, Transcona Enterprises. And um, uh, they they came to Warner Brothers and Warner Brothers saw this huge success that she was uh, having on stage and thought, hey, maybe it's worth it and let's give it a try. So that's how this whole thing came to be. So it's so interesting to me that this this story ended up being really so balanced between the two because of the way that it was kind of crafted as this this vehicle to kind of um you know remake Judy Garland so to speak um you know it 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 was it wasn't just about her and I really appreciate that they actually and and maybe it's because George Cukor was attached I don't know but somehow it really felt so much bigger than just a Judy Garland vehicle to me what I read is that she was still notoriously unstable off screen and that Cukor was dealing with her with all of the things that you just described related to her trying to get and stay clean, uh, that she was dealing with the with weight fluctuations for continuity with the character. Did you notice any of that on screen? Did it present anywhere? I didn't. For you? And I don't think it started that way. I think she started off fine. Um, the way that I read it is as as things progressed through the course of production, issues started. You know, she started yeah. having pleas of, of, you know, saying she was sick and all of these sorts of things and all these issues that happened at MGM. But it started okay. I just think it was a case of her being pushed into these situations. And, you know, it, sadly, I think it's just, it's, you know, I think the system had already kind of done its damage on her. And I think when anytime she kind of kept getting into these projects, it just kind of it was hard for her to not end up ending having these same issues again. You know, she's definitely a talent for the ages. And I sometimes I I I know I'm an island that I don't have that kind of Garland fandom that so many people do. Like to me, she, I, I I'm not a huge fan, uh, but. I, you know, again, the last of this movie, when she sits down and really performs, I would trade any of those little sequences, those the courthouse sequence, the, uh, you know, the sequence where she she says, you know, Norman's in a sanitarium, I, those sequences, I would trade any of those uh, musical numbers for more of those sequences with Judy Garland, just straight up acting. Well, and that's and that is the frustrating thing when you're doing this vehicle. And I, I get it. I mean, she was a singer. I mean, that was largely what she was known for as a star through her whole career was that she was this great performer and singer. And so they want to have her sing. 
but it yeah. just i think i think we're it, both of us in for both of our case i think we're both frustrated that and, and the, i think the other issue is i didn't think any of these songs were that special you know no. I, th- like none of these songs were like uh you know uh you know anything from the wizard of oz or uh even like you know have yourself a merry little christmas from meet me and say louie or get happy from uh, whatever it was from, I'm blanking right now. But she has so many other songs, and I know that the one song in this one that she, that was uh, nominated for an Oscar, uh, "The Man That Got Away," uh, which she sings, that kind of that very bluesy song. Um, I mean, I liked it. It was a nice song. I don't. It it didn't stick with me, and I think that was kind of what I was hoping for with this as a three hour musical. I was hoping I'd walk away going, "Oh, those songs are songs I'm going to be singing for a while." I got none of that. I don't want to say that it's not going to work for other people. I mean, yeah. you know, songs, that's one thing with musicals that I've always found. And sometimes these songs just really stick with certain people and not other people. And that's fine. I mean, I think other people will probably find a lot of joy in listening to these uh, these songs over and over. Right. Again, as a representation of the time, maybe it's, it is possible that we are dated out of, of some of this, some of yeah. this entertainment content. Yeah, right. Uh, already mentioned James Mason. Man, uh, Kukor wanted Cary Grant. Cary Grant did not want Kukor. And I think <laughs> okay. we're better for it. Oh, yes. Yes, absolutely. Um, Cary Grant, I would have been an interesting choice. I've seen him play drunk before. I think he would have been fine. But uh, yeah, I mean, once you see James Mason in this part, it's like, no. no. Nope. <laughs> James Mason <laughs> owns right. this role. <laughs> That's right. He really does. So uh, good. It's just terrific. And uh, uh, a delight to see him. Some of the great sequences, James Mason, just quintessential James Mason sequences when he sets up Oliver to uh, to hear her singing through the open window. Uh, <laughs> I, it's it's fantastic. And it's so fantastic because, frankly, I wasn't I didn't get that it was a bit until late in the bit and it was really rewarding that he was so subtle and so good at playing his boss that uh that that when i realized it was a bit i just it was a wash of just reward i thought this is great this is exactly what i want to see in this movie more of this please (laughs) well if anything in that scene i was like boy he's not good at poker yeah, <laughs> he's way too excited. <laughs> right, right. It was so good. It was so yeah. good. So Matt Libby uh, is played by Jack Carson uh, is, as the uh, PR guy. Do you think Libby feels any remorse in in either of these films when he sees that that Norman Maine has killed himself? That potentially he's the one who led to that yeah. suicide. I I didn't think about that until this movie that that is a that is an apt parallel. Both of these guys should be completely bereft. It's yeah. the, it's on them. Totally is. What a he started jerk. drinking. He's such a jerk. The jerk's Libby. It was not good. <laughs> uh, I do think I, I think in this one, it, in the thirty seven uh, version, I I really liked it. I never got a feeling that Libby in thirty seven liked Norman. Not a not once. No, never, I, I, never. It was always a relationship of of you know professional relationship. And in this movie, I felt a little bit more betrayed because in the for the entire kind of first half, I really felt like Libby that was going to be a difference that Libby actually um, liked him. So it was then a shock when they had the bar sequence at the track, and uh, Libby you know told him it's the same thing he said in thirty seven was. 
I don't like you. I've always been doing this for the job and it leads to the fight. And I, I felt like that was, that was out of sorts for me. It was that, that came a little bit out of left field. I thought that might've been something that they, that they do a different way. Well, but is it out of left field or did it work because of that? Because it seemed like he was a nicer guy, but then it turned out, no, I was only doing it because it was my job. Yeah. Like to me, I think that makes a stronger betrayal. Yeah, you you wanted the betrayal, and I guess I wanted the consistency. As long as we're watching these movies in in of a piece, uh, it, it I, just allows for this great moment where where it's that you know that heartbreaking moment for him where he realizes this guy who he always thought was in his corner really isn't. Yeah, right. No, that's and a good never point. was. It was yeah, only in the studio. Never was corner. right. Right. It's like it, it's any time you see a, a an attorney in a movie who is telling you he's on your side he's always on the client side and that's the that's the thing that we have to get with these pr guys like we're setting up the gestalt of pr yeah right um all right well that that's fair yeah so between the two of them i would say i would argue that this one was actually written better because it felt a little it, it allowed for in my in my situation it allowed for a stronger betrayal so i liked this this libby better well, I get it. I, I would just say that if that's the case, then I don't think Jack Carson played him uh, clearly enough. I never got a sense that that Matt was ever frustrated. Right. Like, well, yeah, right. And I, and I feel I like agree, that yeah. needs to be telegraphed a little bit because then it's a betrayal that the audience isn't like is so not expecting that uh, it's a betrayal to them, too. Right. I mean, yeah, I totally yeah. see your point. I really like the the fact that there is drama in the knife in the back. Uh, but I feel like the way Jack played it, uh, we, we weren't in on it quite enough. It's OK well, for it to be a betrayal for Norman, but I don't think it's always 100 percent OK to be a betrayal without having any hint. I, I, yes, I agree. But I don't think that's Jack Carson's fault. I would pin that on Ma's heart who wrote the screenplay. Yeah. I don't think that those scenes were in here at all. Now, you don't think he so. could have, he could have peppered his lines with a, a few more uh, discreet eye rolls, maybe a tongue wag. Mm, <laughs> okay. Uh. All right. All right. I'm all for the discreet eye rolls. But uh, I did like this, uh, Oliver Niles though. Charles Bickford played Niles. Um, very much. I actually, I mean, I feel like I've liked both of our Niles as, um, I, I think that it's a character that's always worked, but this one I think had some great scenes, like when he uh, when he lets Norman go. I thought that was actually really nicely done. The way that he doesn't want to do it, and he kind of is is hiding out almost, and you know, it's yeah. it it was played really nicely. I liked it quite a bit. I did too. It was a scene between two gentlemen, and I r- appreciated that. Right. There was no fighting or door slamming or glasses thrown in the fireplace like it was just it was two gentlemen talking about, you know, their future. And I think so much of that is because Norman at this point is already, um, you know, he's he's already sort of given up. Right. He knows he knows where this the strain is going. And um, and so it was easier for him to be a gentleman about it. He does. You know, he has a little bit of that uh, of of the fallback again, you know, where he slips uh you know and starts lying a little bit about how all the studios are getting him once we we have that sequence in the sanatorium right. but um but nevertheless i i think that that turn in the in the study was was quite nice uh danny the piano player here played by tommy noonan what i liked about this um 
was the fact that that uh, Danny was basically the granny character, right? Yep. He's a character who allowed for uh, that character, that that other person, for her to talk to and to bounce these things off of. That wasn't necessarily a person back home, and that I think was an issue we both had with Granny in the last film. Is that Granny was hardly ever there. She's there at the beginning and she's there at the end, and largely is dumped through the bulk of the film. Here we have Danny kind of consistently through the film, always there by her side, and that he allowed for uh, this this moment at the end when he has this conversation with her. It it was that that wall that she needed that to kind of have these ideas kind of bouncing off of. And, and he was this kind of a sounding board. I, I don't even know if that's the right way to describe it. Cause he's really the one who kind of comes to her and tells her these things, but it made so much more sense coming from a person who was there witnessing it this whole time, not this deus ex machina character who kind of comes in at the last moment yes. to say, to spout these things. Yeah. I really liked this character. And Tommy Noonan plays him so well. Like, I find him just affable, likable, lovable, you know, cheek pinchable kind of kind. <laughs> and yeah. uh, and that it ties her back to her, you know, her old life, but an old life that is still relevant to the story that we're talking about now, not an old life on the farm. Right. Yeah, So exactly. So, uh, OK, so that's uh, that's the parallel cast that we're most interested in. What do you think about the other? Uh, there, there are a few other sequences of note that are parallel sequences between 37 and 54. What stands out to you? Well, I, I think we're going to start noticing the things that that kind of hit. And I think we've had that conversation where, you know, he's witnessed that something special and and, you know, wants to kind of see her do more. I think that that moment is really nice when, uh, you know, and, and I, I read that little speech that he had earlier when he kind of talks to her after hearing her singing in that in that blues club. Um, it, it's it's a great moment that we kind of have running between these films when he sees that that spark, basically, and then recognizes her as somebody who has something. I think mm -hmm. that's a great thing that we're getting through this. Plus, I mean, I am just absolutely in love with this whole line that they have of of where they uh in both films so far where they call them back and say oh hey and she turns and says i just wanted to look at you again yes i, I just i love that yes absolutely and yeah, it works so it, well and david touching. mason plays it wonderfully it's at a good place in the film too you know i mean it's just really it's just great other than that, I mean, I, 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 there's a lot of consistency in just the overall stories and stuff that we see. Uh, I'm trying to think if there's another moment that stands out as like, oh, that's absolutely a key moment. Well, um, what about the funeral? Yeah. You, you know, know the funeral was it was uh, it's aggressive and and, you know, it's albeit brief. Uh, I, I feel like they leveled up the funeral here when she when we have that scream from the press, give us just one look and the hand reaches in and lifts the veil uh, and, um, you know, Vicky breaks down. And I, I thought that was a very strong um, and and a much more aggressive even statement on, you know, paparazzi on media. Uh, and, um, you know, media's, you know, the nature of, of media through grief here. Not even the media, like fandom, because I think yeah. a lot of those people in the crowd are just fans who are screaming and saying these things. That's and it's just, it's, it's horrifying the way that people act with these people yeah. that, you know, feeling like, you know, we own them and, uh, you know, I, you know, perform monkey dance, monkey yeah. dance. Right. 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 It's yeah. Part of the job. Part of the job. All right. 
Yeah, I mean, it, I, I can't think of anything else that that stands out as like other key moments. Oh, actually, another another great one is obviously the award speech when she wins her Oscar and he comes in drunk and he gives his little uh, he interrupts her and he has his little kind of speech that he does up there. That was really heartbreaking in this when he's just yeah. up there like I need a job. And it's just like, oh, my God, this is awful. This is so embarrassing. I'm just horrified for this poor guy and for her for having to be there with him. I I felt like it's it's another great scene that they've continued from from film to film, and it's uh boy is it a tough one. They you know I I think also they amped it up here just yeah, like some of the other scenes. I absolutely that's what I was going to say too. It is a it's a level up, and they kept the smack and uh you know her response is is excellent. I, I just really I mean that's a that's one of those examples of of this heartbreaking scene uh, that it, <laughs> that acts as just another dot in between musical performances. <laughs> uh, George, do you want to talk about George Cukor at all? Uh, I I don't have a lot to say um, specifically about about old George. What's interesting is I think that this was the first time for him that he had done a musical and uh, the and also Technicolor and in anamorphic widescreen. So it's I think for him, it was a number of um, big steps forward in his own career. And I think um, I don't know. I, I He's a director we've talked about on the show before. He's pretty interesting. I guess he actually had worked with. Uh, which we probably also talked about way back in the uh, uh, Wizard of Oz when he was on it for like a week before he got fired. Right. And um, I and I, I think that actually, and I'm going to forget what it is, but there was a nod to to that moment when he was on there and something he said to Judy. Oh, I think it was they were putting this wig on on uh, on Judy Garland to make her, you know, a, a you know different hair color. And one of the things that he did on the week that he was on is he like took the wig off and said, no, 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 let's go with your natural hair. It looks much better. And I think that was a little nod that they put into this when the, the studio people like make her up to look like this totally different person. And, and Norm is just like, oh, no, no. And he just kind of pulls all that off. So I thought yeah. that was a nice little a nice little nod and a way to kind of uh, kind of connect his relationship with Judy. It's a little cuckoo Easter egg right there. <laughs> it really kind Easter of is. Egg. Yeah, very much. Yeah. Sam Levitt is the man behind the camera. You know, there were a few a few bits that I noticed that I'm like, you know, I kind of like the way they're shooting this. Uh, it's it did have that nice Technicolor look, as we just said, the anamorphic. It, it's always frustrating watching anamorphic um, nowadays because I could tell the very edges of frame as as things would move off the frame. They kind of squeezed a little bit more like it wasn't perfectly reframed yet. Mm hmm. Maybe in that that final George Cukor uh, uh, edit, if they ever find all the pieces, they'll get all that right. But it still looked great. There were a few uh, things that I noticed the way that they that they lit it. But I think for the most part, a lot of it was um, it felt pretty standard as far as just kind of the Technicolor musicals, you know, a lot of vibrant songs and dance and costumes and all that sort of stuff. So uh, it it it's. It stood out in a way where I'm like, okay, they're they're making this look really nice. It looks uh, it looks like a, a beautiful '50s Technicolor film, um, but it didn't. Uh, it wasn't like the top of my list or anything. But still, I thought it looked nice. What do you make of the cinemascope change? I, they, my understanding is after you know the word that 
I've seen used as considerable footage has, had already been shot. They decided to change uh, everything and reshoot in CinemaScope. Is that just a timely decision or is there something more to it? Yeah, I mean, I think that a lot of that falls to this whole switch with the studios dealing with uh, with television, the advent of TV, and just trying to find things that they can do to to get people back to theaters. There has to be this this something different. It is going to look bigger and grander, and you can't just get this on TV. So, mm-hmm. um, I think largely that's why these sorts of decisions were getting made around this time, this point in time. Okay, we've already danced a little bit about around the music. Ray Heindorf is listed as uncredited behind the music. Remember, this is a period where, I mean, credits were really short. They didn't feel the need to list everybody. They kind of listed a few key people, and then that was pretty much it. How do you feel like the guy behind the music in a musical is not worth crediting? Well... It's a musical, yeah, but it's it's like he did the score. He didn't he wasn't involved in any of the songs. And so so to that end, I I think that's where that difference happened. You know, he came on board uh to do all the kind of just the dramatic scoring of the film and all of the songs were done by you know, huge variety of people. I mean, there were um, Arlen and Gershwin songs in there. There were, uh, you know, Edens and uh, Roger Edens and Leonard Gersh did uh, the uh, Born in a Trunk bit. Uh, more George Gershwin, uh, Hart and Rogers, uh, just a wide variety of artists. Mostly it was Arlen and Gershwin, though, uh, Harold Arlen mm-hmm. and Ira Gershwin doing the songs. And, um, and so they're the ones who I think largely get the notice when it comes time to saying, you know, hey, it's a musical because you're listening to Judy Garland sing these songs. They're the ones who wrote the songs. Right. Are these the least memorable Gershwin songs you've uh, you've heard? I'd have to look at a list to see um, <laughs> a list of other songs you can't remember. Right. Exactly. Honestly, I like I, I don't know. I, I know that these guys had done um, quite a bit of stuff before. And I think Garland actually wanted these guys to come on and do these songs because of work that they had done in the past if i remember correctly and so you know i mean i liked the songs i thought they all worked great in context of the songs themselves and her singing them i mean she was just fantastic but you know but now as i read through the names of the songs like i can't sing any of them i I, you know that's that to me is the frustrating part um but i mean you know i i think that there um you know i i think that there are good songs here it's just nothing that you know stands out or nothing that has lasted the test of time for me. How to do an award season? Uh, you know, it did pretty well for itself, uh, proving that this story is a a, uh, a story that does draw awards notice. It had five wins, eleven other nominations at the Oscars. Um, uh, they were all nominations, no wins at the Oscars. It had one, two, three, four, five, six nominations. James Mason was nominated for best actor. He lost to Marlon Brando for On the Waterfront. That's a hard one to argue. Yeah. Pretty impressive performance there. Judy Garland was nominated. She lost to Grace Kelly for The Country Girl. I can't speak to that because I have not seen The Country Girl, but I thought Judy Garland was great. What was interesting, though, is Garland actually couldn't uh, be there because she was actually um, birthing her third child, her son, Joey. And she didn't win, but she always said that Joey was the best Academy Award she ever received that night. So that's very nice. Oh, very sweet. But this was this was that era where it was a little awkward because uh, because the um, the 
uh, station had a camera in her hospital room in case she won so they could cut to her accepting her award from her hospital bed. Ah, the good old days. <laughs> I, I don't, I don't know what to say about that. Well, now it would, now it would just be live streamed on YouTube. Yeah, right. Now, now all of that has just gotten easier. Isn't that gross? Right. You don't have to have the camera there. The The person will just tweet it out. They'll tweet it themselves. Oh, uh, let's see. Art direction, set decoration, color uh, was nominated, but lost to 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Costume design, color lost to Gate of Hell, a Japanese film. The original song, The Man That Got Away, we were just talking about, it lost to the song Three Coins in the Fountain. Now, I will say, the only reason I know about that song is because of Trains, Planes, and Automobiles. <laughs> Three coins in a fountain. <laughs> Come on, you know this song, right? <laughs> right, right. Flintstones. Meet the Flintstones. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> That's, I was going to uh, say that same thing, Andy. This yep. was meant to be. It's kismet. No idea um, what the man that got away sounds like right now, though. No, um, but I, I actually I really liked it. I just watched the movie. But but I did like that song quite a bit, and I was like, you know, okay, I can see why. I guess that song became another of her standards that she would sing um, often. Like after this, uh, when she would do her stage shows, this became another song that was in kind of that Judy Garland library when she would just go out and sing it, just like um, well, uh, over the rainbow, which I think was probably the most famous version mm-hmm. or most famous song that she would kind of always sing. Right. Uh, and that, well, we just mentioned Ray Heindorf. He was nominated for best, uh, best score, but, uh, he lost to seven brides for seven brothers, another musical. And, oh, and then at the golden globes though, James Mason and Judy Garland did get nominated for uh, best actor and actress respectively. And they both did win. So at least they did walk away with those awards. How did it do at the box office? This iteration of A Star is Born cost a pretty penny to get made. $5 million or $44.7 million in today's dollars. Quite a lot of money. Um, it did have its release on September 29th, 1954. Unfortunately, whether because it was cut down by a half hour or just because audiences didn't click with it, hard to say, the movie, while dubbed a critical and commercial success, only ended up bringing $4.4 million back or about $39.4 million in today's dollars. The movie ended up with an adjusted loss per finished minute of $34,900, but it is a film that lingers on in people's memories, and with the restoration and everything, certainly has found a place in people's hearts. Did it find a place in your heart, Andy? That is the grand question. Right. And it is the question that we hope to answer with Flickchart. All righty, here we go. Head over to flickchart.com to see how this movie stacks up on our list. If you want to swipe over in the show notes and hit the word flickchart right there in the links, uh, that'll take you straight to this movie on their lovely site, where you can add it to your own list and see how it stacks up against ours. Fitting place to start, Pete. A Star is Born, 1954, or A Star is Born, 1937. Well, this is sort of where the rubber meets the road, ain't it? (laughs) It is. Is uh, this is this is a pretty easy call for me, and it's 1937. Yeah, 1937 for me as well. All right. It's not an easy call, though. These two are really close for me. A Star is Born or La Femme Nikita. I will say A Star is Born. I will say La Femme Nikita. All right, here we go. One, One two, two, three. three scissors. Oh, I, cr- I will Nikita crush you. I begin with it. the crushing of you. A Star is Born or Giant. I'm going to say A Star is Born. I will say A Star is Born. 
A Star is Born or The Girl Who Played with Fire. I would say The Girl Who Played with Fire. Absolutely. A Star is Born or My Dinner with Andre. I'm going to say A Star is Born. I will also say A Star is Born. (laughs) Sorry, Andre. A Star is Born or 2001, A Space Odyssey. 2001 for me, please. (laughs) I would would watch us. Oh, man. I would see the thing is. I'd go straight to sleep to 2001, so it might be a good opportunity for nap. But I also get a nap in this one. I'm going to choose <laughs> A Star is Born. All right, here we go. One, one two, two, three. Paper. Scissors. Oh. <sighs> Andy, is, this might be your first 2001 win. <laughs> it probably is. <laughs> a Star is Born or Christine, I will say A Star is Born. Okay, that surprises oh, me, but I'm going to give Actually, it to no, I'm going to say Christine, the more I think about it. Okay, good, because that's where I was going to go, but I felt like... Oh, we look at that. I wishy-washy you, you both ways. Yeah, you wishy-washy people. <laughs> I've never heard uh, that as a verb, so I that's a win. I decided to make it up just now. <laughs> <laughs> a star is born, or defending your life. Defending I'm going to say a star is born. No, 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 no. That's incorrect. That is Try what I'm going to say. Try it again. Uh, defending star is your born. life. I'll start with defending your life. All right, here we go. It's one defending your life. Oh, we're doing this. Okay. <laughs> yeah. We're, one. One. Two. two three. three scissors. Oh, curses. <laughs> well, that puts a star is born at three hundred thirty-two on our chart. Three thirty-two out of three ninety-six. So it's about a sixteen percent, which is pretty low. Yeah, pretty low. How to do on your? personal list i liked this film i uh, i did have an issue with the musical numbers and you and what they did to the overall length of the film but just like the previous film and even i would say just like you know what price hollywood i think every iteration i really connect with these characters and their journey and so even with the musical numbers i'd still give this a three star and a like so same place i put the previous one but um uh, I would still rank it just a tiny bit lower. And I think you're a star too generous on on this film. I think the mess that is the entire middle of the film dramatically takes away from even the the little bit of not even the little bit the narrative joy and the performance joy that I get in the beginning and and at the end. And uh, it, I find it just too distracting. It just does not hold together as an entire film experience for me. I'm giving it a two star straight across. Wow, pretty low. Yeah, and that's and is actually that, is where that a it two star be. and a like still, no, or two no, star and no. Not. Like? I'm not going to go back to this movie. I'm I've I've I, I'm kind of finished with it. Uh, it. It's not something that I'm I'm longing to to see again. Maybe if if I end up doing a, uh, you know, sitting down with the kids to do a classic film series of these movies. I can't imagine ever doing that ever. Uh, <laughs> but uh, you know, there it it'd be for a, a whole different context. Certainly not for the entertainment of it and and that's exactly where it shows up on my uh, flick chart my personal flick chart it's two stars and it's at a 39 percent. it's at 645 uh, out of 1063 um you know where at two stars for letterbox.com slash the next reel that feels about right even 39 percent feels a little bit high for me wow. so that's where it lives interesting interesting so that that brings us to uh, the end of this particular episode and the end of this uh, the first half of our series. We've done the first two, the classics. Now we're moving up uh, kind of a long way. Uh, where do we go from here? 
Yeah, we're jumping to 1976. We're going to be looking at uh, A Star is Born, directed by Frank Pearson, starring Barbara Streisand and Chris Christopherson. Now, It'll I be a, an interesting shift into kind of rock and roll as opposed to uh, people working behind the screen. Have you have you watched this one yet? I have not. Okay, this ought to be interesting. This this is the this one you had seen. Yes, yes, and uh, I'm eager to hear your opinion of this movie, especially okay. now that we've done the now that I know where the first two uh, stand for you. That's telling. Well, I look forward to it. Oh, it's going to be juicy. Well, everybody, if you want to hear more of us, but you can't wait until next week's show, check out our other show, The Marvel Movie Minute. We're talking about the films of the Marvel Cinematic Universe one minute at a time. Uh, we just hit an hour on 2008's Iron Man. And you can support that show and all of our other shows over on thenextreel.com slash Patreon. We can get access to our exclusive members-only weekend show, The Saturday Matinee. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Amazon giveth, Andy. As Amazon always doeth. You know who else got away with something grand in this? But it's like guys, uh, uh, Warner Brothers, right? Because Amazon took the brunt of, <laughs> of the blame for the reconstruction in 1983. So thanks, Amazon, uh, oh, for they? for standing in the way of uh, of the bullet on this one. Um, we we have some one star reviews that are, I think, representative of. All of the one-star reviews, uh, and so you'll get kind of a tone. You'll get a sense of of what we're dealing with here. Uh, would you like to go first? Sure. Yeah, I've got I've got a one-star by HNL who says a fake. This is not the real movie. After about a half hour, it goes to audio only with production stills. WTF? <laughs> oh yeah, oh, I got dear. one. I, I got one from Deb P who says I chose. HD, so I don't know if the same thing would happen in SD, but <laughs> a lot of the scenes became photos with the voice still playing rather than the movie. I just disappointed in the viewing, but the story is still a classic. So <laughs> I'll take that as an object lesson because that was October 7th, 2018, uh, that in fact that had nothing to do with HD or SD, it is in fact intentional. So, Deb, if you're yeah. listening, consider yourself helped. I think a lot of people um, started watching this again after the remake. Yeah, you know, I saw a lot of people right. saying, "Well, I wanted to check out the other versions of it." And well, uh, you get a real sense that a lot of people watched it, and as soon as it went to the to the photos, they stopped watching it. Right. Yeah. Because there's a sense from a assumed. lot of these, they assume the entire rest of the movie was some sort of bootleg. And I, I get that these days. I mean, that's a I think that's a real concern. If you don't read the package, if you don't read the and we didn't even talk about the the opening uh, text uh, on this yeah, particular right. movie. Right. That that actually does explain what's going on. Right. Exactly. The Warner Brothers, which is great. You know, the studio is basically you know, apologizing for past mistakes that they right. themselves did. Right. You know, yeah. Right. Yeah. Sorry. That no. was our bad. We're trying to fix it now. That's so right. you'll, the, the picture's a little, needs a little love, but 
Oh, dear. Well, they'll get there. They'll you know, you're going to have a little faith. Maybe the 2030 uh, rebuild of this film will, will take care of it. <laughs> yeah. Thanks, Amazon. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms. But in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM. And it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content. And we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash Transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash Transistor. Start growing your podcast today. <laughs>